I believe with every fibre of my being that the course I have set out is the right one for our country and all our people. What has been achieved today is not Brexit. I don't believe this government has negotiated fairly or effectively. Brexit is a lose-lose situation. We have always followed the EU mandate. It is utterly unacceptable to anybody who believes in democracy. Hello and welcome to Brexit The Final Countdown. I'm Rebecca Hudson and this week we are joined by Tom Buick. Hello. Hello. Former Labour councillor in Brighton and Hove and prospective Brexit Party parliamentary candidate for Hastings and Rye. Welcome. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> I know I've already said this to you, but your people have said that you, you give great podcast. So we're really Only excited. because I think I am involved in, in my professional world in podcasting. Yeah, but you're a pro. This, this is my first sort of inaugural podcast talking about Brexit. Oh, fabulous. Yeah. So I'm glad you chose us and not any of the others that are available. <laughs> you don't have a Twitter, though, so how are you going to publicize that you're here? I do have a Twitter. No, it's a it's secret at, one. Well, I have at Tom Buick, which has been going for a long time with my family and friends, but actually at Tom Buick 2. There is a oh. there is an alter ego, okay. Tom Buick 2. So if you're listening and you want to know all about my campaigning, Hastings and Rye, that's the place to okay, tune into. Brilliant. Good plug. Um, and of course, we're also joined by our Europe editor, Joe Barnes, in Brussels. Hello. Hello. Hello, chaps. We have 42 days until Brexit. There is a Supreme Court decision in 36 hours, and we're probably 10 minutes away from another immediate appearance from David Cameron, because he is everywhere this morning, isn't he? Can't move for him. Uh, so there's plenty to get through. Let us begin. <laughs> Tom, you have a fascinating story. We are obsessed with Labour stalwarts who defect, cross the, cross, the, cross the Rubicon and join the Brexit party. I think it's a really fascinating journey that people are making increasingly. What's your story? How do you become, how do you leave the Labour party of 27 years and end up... Well, first of all, to be described as a Labour stalwart, that in itself is well, probably something to uh, <laughs> frame and put up in, the, in yeah. the, you know, the downstairs WC. But anyway, yes, so I joined the Labour Party when I was uh, a lad. I was 17 years old. Actually, I joined, I mean, I, I'm a working class lad from uh, Nuneaton in Warwickshire. Um, Boris Johnson went to uh, Eton School. I went to Eton Comprehensive. Uh, so slightly different experience. Um, I left with just one O level. But I joined uh, the Labour Party and it was a, a great way actually of um, you know, getting hold of mentors as well as being uh, involved in politics. So for me, it was like sort of joining in some ways the family I never had. So to be in the Labour Party for 27 years and mm. then find myself... Uh, increasingly uh, exasperated with Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, with the anti-Semitism problems, and then, of course, with Brexit. Um, it was a no-brainer, really, for me to resign, stand down from my seat uh, in Brighton and Hove as a Labour councillor and join the Brexit party. What is it about the Brexit? So how are you reckon? So obviously, you're sort of, you're pro-Brexit, you're a Brexiteer. How are you reconciling any of your kind of Labour principles with um, the likes of Farage and Richard Tice and Lance Foreman, sort of multimillionaire businessmen? Like, how does, how, I'm curious about how you reconcile your two sets of principles. Well, look at the values of the Labour Party historically. Um, you know, look at some of the, the great other stalwarts in the Labour Party, far more well-known than myself, like Barbara Castle and Peter Shaw and Tony Benn and, of course, Kate Hoey. Uh, today, I mean, there's always been that sort of, um, you know, progressive, patriotic view that, um, you know, Britain's best place is as an internationalist, um, well, certainly for the Labour Party, you know, an internationalist party that looks to alliances um, across the whole world. So, you know, interestingly, in the 1975 referendum, Barbara Castle made a very impassioned speech about the importance of not discriminating from workers, for example, that were coming over from India to the United Kingdom to work. You know, why should somebody be 
privileged in terms of uh, being uh, on our shores uh, in Europe. So there's always been that sort of sense of, you know, we need to stand tall in the world as a country that has relations, multilateral relations. That's why we're on the Security Council in the UN. That's why we're part of NATO. I have absolutely no problem whatsoever with us cooperating with our friends and allies around the world. But this sort of idea we've got to be part of this uh, European superstate, which is obviously what the EU project is really all about. Labour has always historically been against that. But they kind of still are against it, aren't they? I mean, it's taken a really long time to coax any position out of Corbyn and Madonna. I mean, they are, they're, le- they're like you, they're Lexiteers, aren't they? So why leave? Well, I think there are many people within the Labour Party, including, uh, you know, senior figures, who, if you talk to them in private, will say to you that the European Union um, system as a project is a busted flush and it's not something that Britain has a long-term future in. You know, we're not going to join the Euro. They've got real doubts about this whole Uh, European army concepts and of course the whole concept of European integration by definition means um, you know overriding uh, popular national sovereignty of course you can have those debates in private but I think in public you've got a very uh, London-centric sort of Remainer strand and it's led by people like Keir Starmer and Emily Thornberry Tom Watson's seat of course is in the Midlands but he's another advocate uh, for Uh, remain because I think they've all taught themselves into this idea that actually Brexit is a right-wing plot that it is some kind of you know led by Nigel Farage um, you know taking Britain out into some sort of... Can you sympathise with that position though like sort of the rhetoric around things like immigration um, and the fact that it has kind of been spearheaded by people typically sort of right of centre in this country I kind of get why people think it's a right-wing thing. I think the biggest problem, actually, is you cannot look through, uh, look at Brexit. You cannot actually look at the fundamental issue about whether or not Britain should be an independent, self-governing nation or part of some kind of supranational entity simply through the prism of left and right. Because, frankly, in my view, you're either a Democrat, you know, you're either on that side of the argument that you believe that um, you know the laws of a given jurisdiction uh, should be made by the people who live within it and therefore the people governing us, you know, should be subject to that democratic accountability, or frankly, you don't believe in that. And actually, that's where the great dividing line today is in British politics. It's not so much left and right. But I can understand why those on the left who don't like Brexit want to try and position it, because they need a dividing line, <laughs> don't they? Smear campaign. As a kind of, you know, right-wing plot. But actually, when you look at who's come into the Brexit party, I mean, I have no problems whatsoever being on a platform with Anne Widdicombe or with Nigel Farage, but also with, you know, um, Claire Fox, uh, MEP, and Henry Nielsen. Yeah, you know, who's come well, from even, you know, way out to the sort of left yeah. of where I've been constitutionally. And that's because we are what I would describe a coalition of patriots. Yeah, just for that, my that's right. wedding that ring is just some, hit that the is table. That is a serious that's because, ring. I know, that's you because mean I'm that being, wedding. Yes, I did. <laughs> you meant that I marriage. Did. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Um, that's interesting what you say, because, yeah, you are a bit of a coalition of kind of bandits, aren't you? Like, yeah, the fact that you would share a stage with Anne Widdicombe and Martin Daubry and Claire Fox, like, you're a pretty broad church, the Brexit party, in the same way that kind of the Lib Dems are becoming quite a broad church. Like, you know, Chuck Amana rubbing shoulders with Joe Swinson, rubbing shoulders with Sam Juma. It's kind of like you guys are super united around a Brexit position, but then once Brexit is maybe one day solved, what the hell are you all going to talk about? It's like being trapped in a lift with a bunch of hell as other people. It's like a day's... Uh, you know what I mean? Like, what are you going to... Well, it doesn't feel like that, actually. I mean, in terms of being sort of trapped in 
a lift with potentially some sort of swivel-eyed uh, loons. I mean, that felt to me more like my closing era <laughs> in the Labour Party oh, and some of the their, kind of you know, the branch, the branch meetings that I was <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. invited to. Um, actually, you know, the vast majority of people I've met in the Brexit Party are absolutely the kind of people you would invite down the pub on a Friday night and have a conversation with. Actually, there's a lot of moderate, sensible people within the Brexit Party. But of course, what, what unites us is a very principled stand on the question of, is Britain a representative uh, democracy or not? Uh, are we going to honour the biggest democratic mandate in our whole electoral history? More people voted for Brexit than have voted for anything else uh, in our history. And actually, what's opening up, I think, because you know we're not a complete policy-free uh, zone, and obviously we're focused on this clean break Brexit. Mm-hmm, we can talk about that in a to, moment. Um, but actually, you know, there are policies emerging, which is... I would argue, anyway, um, far more sort of radical centrist in terms of its political uh, tradition. So, you know, the scrapping of HS2, that's a very bold move, but saving £100 billion to invest in rail connectivity each side of the Pennines in the north, west and northeast. That's not something you'd associate with a sort of right-wing, low-tax, small-government uh, type uh, party. You know, we've got policies um, coming through on uh, investment in digital and broadband. So I think there's actually a very interesting space opening up in British politics, I would argue, around the radical centre uh, of politics. But it has to be based on the idea of popular national sovereignty. That's what I'm absolutely committed to. So are you super annoyed that... Parliament's been prorogued, and none of those rep- none of those people are able to rep- able to kind of work through the will of the people. And has that annoyed you? I, I mean, I just think the whole debate around the prorogation, suspension of Parliament, is a lot of sort of manufactured rage by the current political class in Parliament, who just don't like the fact that they you know, they can't command the airwaves every single day with the latest wheeze <laughs> in Parliament that they've come up with in order to put the executive on the spot. So. Um, of course, you know, I mean, there is an irony in all of this. And, I, you know, I find it actually quite ironic. Here we are three years on from uh, the referendum result that a lot of the language that I was using, for example, during the Leave campaign about democracy, about returning powers back to our sovereign parliament. These, essentially, this is language now. It's been hijacked by the other yeah, side. And they're yeah. trying to sort of turn the guns back on people on my side of the argument, like stop the coup, for example. I mean, as <laughs> if you can have a coup um, against the public when the sitting prime minister of the day puts two motions before parliament calling for a general election. I mean, it's got to be one of the most unusual <laughs> coups ever to yeah, have I mean, uh, been executed. Times. Yeah, absolutely. Would, um, would you be up for a, a election then? Obviously, you're very keen because you want Amber Rudd's old job, kind of. I mean, the country does need a general election. We need to go back to um, the country. Quite whether that will resolve the the whole um, conundrum in terms of the arithmetic in the House of Commons, we have to see. I think one way we could actually resolve the arithmetic, and this is something, of course, Nigel Farage has put country before party and he's uh, proposed mm. to the Conservatives that he clears the way for the Brexit party to stand in particularly those seats uh, in the East and West Midlands, in South Yorkshire, parts of the North West and indeed uh, South Wales, where the Conservatives haven't won in 100 years anyway. Right. We would absolutely uh, take the fight to the Labour Party and um, you know, uh, return a significant number of Brexit Party MPs that could be in a position to support a Brexit supporting party. I assume that would be the Conservatives yeah. to finally get Brexit over the line. So, if you could choose, if you could like write the timeline, when would you want the ele- when do you want an election? Just straight after we leave on the thirty first of October with your clean Brexit, which I'll I can't be- wait to understand. Or when do you want it? I'll answer the question really precisely. Thursday the twenty eighth of November would be my. <laughs> 
preferred date because I've already blocked it out in the diary. Oh, so, <laughs> are you ready? And I'm ready. I mean, you know, we're starting to put together a team of activists in Hastings and Rye. Again, it's made up of uh, former Labour people, former Conservatives and people who've non-aligned, who've never been involved in a political party uh, at all. But they also want to see Brexit delivered and a clean break Brexit. So what you've said it enough times now, what is a clean break Brexit? Well, I think it's a recognition that after three years of negotiation with the European Union, uh, you know, Theresa May's uh, withdrawal agreement, which of course has failed um, to attract the support of the House of Commons on three occasions. It's very clear now that uh, you know, the EU has not been operating in good faith with uh, our desire as a nation when we voted in uh, 2016 to you know, repatriate our laws and to get back control, for example, of our uh, international trade policy including, of course, um, our fishing grounds. Now, there's nothing about that 585-page uh, withdrawal treaty mm. uh, that delivers on any of those sort of red lines that were there when Theresa May originally set off with her Lancaster House speech, which was very you know, bold in terms of taking back control. It was about independence, but working um, through a trade agreement with our European uh, allies. They haven't delivered on that. You know, the Northern Irish border obviously has uh, sort of blown up as an issue uh, that... But it was always going to be an issue, wasn't it? It's just no one was talking about it on that bus in 2016. Like, we weren't talking about, you know, the impact, you know, that there could potentially be a hard border on the border on Ireland. Of on course, the island of Ireland. I, you know, I wouldn't want to underplay some of the challenges around that border, but I think it's worth reminding ourselves that you know there's been a common travel area so therefore free movement of people mm. um, between uh, the Republic of Ireland and um, the UK since the late 1920s so that solves the freedom sort of movement of travel uh, issue uh, you know you can keep a border open in terms of not having to check people for their papers uh, when they come there and also you know I think there are, and, and I've read about these some innovative sort of proposals about how you can move goods around how you you know how you can have common regulatory areas on the island of Ireland for things like agricultural goods so it just feels like it's um, a problem that has been manufactured way out of sort of control really because it's a political move by the European Union to sort of trap us in a customs union which is their long-term objective. Joe what do you, you must come in on this what do you think your good EU is being trashed? <laughs> um, I want to kind of reiterate back to a point that was made about the withdrawal agreement. Fisheries wasn't included in any part. It was included in the political declaration um, as a, an ambition to sign a fisheries agreement, but that would be our sovereign right to do so. So kind of the withdrawal agreement was taking fisheries back. It was taking back control of laws. Um, for instance, one of the Brexiteers' complaints is always the ECJ will have oversight. It will have oversight on anything that has EU kind of citizens involved and that was only for eight years so i think we've kind of overblown it and brexiteers have potentially with their complaints stopped brexit and i'm sure that's an argument that a lot of people put to on doorsteps of you could have had this done ages ago and even jacob brief mogg voted for Theresa may's deal at one point um but when we talk about a clean break brexit what that does is that leaves us at back at 2016 without eu membership so how are you going to explain to people what kind of Brexit vision you would want to put forward in, in an election campaign? Well, first of all, I mean, a clean break Brexit um, is not a, a complete divorce. I mean, there are already, if you like, mini deals or side deals that through the so-called no deal planning that we've been doing on both could sides I, of I the channel. There, Go on. They are constructed by the EU for the EU. 
So we would be at their will, and that is basically handing our sovereignty in things like access to financial markets, access to the air, skies, um, access to fisheries. We are literally handing sovereignty over to the EU to participate in those deals, which is what we didn't vote for. And doesn't it prolong Brexit even further? Because, yeah, like Joe was saying, we have, we have to come to micro-agreements on everything, you know, sharing databases for Europol and all that kind of good stuff. Like, it, a clean Brexit is actually is just kind of like a longer Brexit, no? No, I, I think we've reached a stage where a clean break Brexit and therefore on uh, November the 1st, the United Kingdom, in effect, becomes a third country. So as it says in the Article 50... Uh, legislation, the treaties no longer apply. Now, obviously, that is not an absolute ideal situation to continue in perpetuity. You know, they are, uh, as a trading bloc, our largest trading partner, although, of course, the United States as a single country is our largest trading partner. And even the European Commission accepts that 90% of all future uh, world economic growth will be outside of the EU. So I think we've got to see this as a uh, as a process whereby if we get out of the EU on the 1st of November, the treaties no longer apply, we're a third country, and we can then have a grown-up conversation with our friends and partners about what kind of long-term trade deal we want to put together. The problem with the whole withdrawal agreement and the way in which the uh, political declaration is framed as well is it's sort of all being set up as getting us to a point in the negotiations where effectively we have to agree to staying in the customs union or a customs union and the single market in perpetuity uh, without a vote, without a voice, but still following all the same rules and regulations. And that, I think, is what we are absolutely desperate to avoid in the Brexit party. And our offer of a clean break Brexit we see as the way of escaping that kind of uh, that kind of conundrum. So on the doorstep when you're talking to the good people of Hastings and Rye, what do you do when they can't get their medication because they're schizophrenic or because they haven't got anyone to look after them because there's no... So these are all... Okay, so this is all from Yellowhammer, that yeah. there's a growth in the black market. What do you do when people are rioting and smashing all those nice waitroses that you have on your road? Like what... Clean break Brexit is no deal Brexit is WTO by the same name, isn't it? So, so how... Well, I mean, it just, I mean, for me, as someone that campaigned actively during the 2016 referendum, again, was on the doorstep and equally conversations. Don't forget, we all got that nine and a half million pound leaflet through our letterboxes, uh, warning of the dangers of not voting uh, to remain in the European Union. We had Project Fear, we had the 800,000 lost jobs, the emergency budget, the technical, I mean, you know, all of those things then were on the doorstep. And people mm. were saying to me when I was advocating uh, to vote leave, oh, but you know, we're going to lose our jobs and the... Uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse are going to descend on uh, the south coast of England. So none of that actually uh, happened. So, I, you know, I don't want to underplay that there's potentially going to be disruption. But you seriously telling me that the fifth largest economy in the world, which is an advanced economy with uh, that's part of a global uh, supply chain that has friends and allies uh, in Europe and beyond Europe, that we're going to have serious medical uh, supply shortages and that the government hasn't put the essential contingency plans in place. I just don't believe it. So I think the vast majority of actually ordinary folk on the doorstep look at these scare stories. And because they're so over the top, a, they're so over the top. This was a report that was produced by government, which is actively pursuing a no deal Brexit. Like this, it, you know, this isn't, uh, this wasn't done by, you know, People's Vogue or Alistair Campbell or Gina Miller. This was done by people who are pursuing the, the policy that you you want as well. And that's what they were saying. That Yeah. Not this enough. was done by, you know, and, and I've, look, I've worked in government at 
the highest level I've you know been in the civil service. So I don't doubt that there is well-meaning integrity uh, amongst our civil service. But equally, I think we've got to be aware of the fact that um, you know these are worst-case scenarios, and there's always that sense. And I saw this myself when I was in the civil service. People want to cover their backs, so of course they want to talk up the worst-case scenario rather than actually what will probably more likely happen, which is some short-term disruption. But the, the fundamental supply chain of, of, of food, of fresh groceries and medical supplies will continue to flow into the United Kingdom. Okay. Well, the FT are running a story today that says there aren't even going to be enough um, prepackaged sandwiches. Are you a fan yeah. of a prepackaged sandwich? <laughs> I am when I, this when is like I need to. that question about biscuits. You, I, you have to answer. You must yes. like, yeah. I do, I do. But I, do, I mean, we've had similar scare stories about Mountain Mowbray pork pies not being sold. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's getting ridiculous. Just pack your own sandwiches. Let yeah. them eat cake. Okay, fine. So your, your sovereignty at any cost doesn't matter if you haven't got any medicine because if we are the fifth largest economy in the world, it will be fine. I just think we will have those medical uh, supplies. I mean, look, I mean... Have you got some? <laughs> I'm, always, I'm always stocking up the uh, the first aid cupboard but look I, I, I mean even when there are I'm not saying for a minute you know that Britain's going to sort of be in a uh, doomsday uh, developing sort of world uh, scenario but you know, look at how effective uh, the, the the world community is when we do have disasters real disasters in other parts of the world and we manage to get basic supplies into those countries I mean I, I think we've shown through past practice that it is possible to do that so i just i just don't believe this story that there's going to be a shortage of medical supplies so you're not it. yeah you're not you're not going to convince me on that one i think there are <laughs> many people listening to this and your readers will also feel the same way i i no, i think you're, i think you definitely are speaking for our readers and our listeners um i just think it's fascinating that we're in this kind of post-fact we are post fact now, and just because you don't believe it is well, it's the underlying assumptions, isn't it, and where it's coming from, and we all know the that the civil, civil service, service. Is, is a go on what hot hot bed of rampant <laughs> remainers. <laughs> <laughs> a bit like where you're from. Um, okay, but we're saying all this, we're preparing for no deal, but there might still be a deal, no, Joe? Because um, who was it yesterday? Macron and um, who was the other European leader, Joe? Um, so it's Rene, who is the Prime Minister of Finland yes. and the current incumbent of the EU's six-monthly rotating presidency. Brilliant. So they're, they're saying... the agenda... They're saying that we have until September the 30th to produce our kind of all, our alternatives to the Northern Irish backstop our alternative plans to for Brexit to get a deal done. Is that right? Yeah, so basically what this what they was suggested yesterday and really the Finnish PM came out and said that we need Boris Johnson to table his plans by September the thirtieth before if we realistically have a chance of striking up a deal with him. So what's interesting there is most people in Brussels think that Boris Johnson is going to table his final plans after he's given his uh, Conservative Party speech as police first as prime minister, which comes a few days afterwards. So they're kind of, it's basically kind of working up to that. And they're going, we really need that plan as soon as possible. The 30th is realistic. Is it a fixed deadline? Probably not. But what I think it does in- indicate is a direction of travel, that people are expecting something to come from Britain at that point. And there just seems to be this, week, so two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we had this kind of air of confidence that nothing kind of came from talks. And it all went, everyone's depressed. Everyone's sitting in their pint glasses going, oh, it's going to be no deal. What's going on? But now I think we're moving back to that point where they think a deal is possible. So what what is what is really interesting is, and then I was speaking to a few of my sources last night, and they're kind of looking at things. And they go, look, we can use the Good Friday Agreement to allow some loopholes and some kind of holes in our single market. But what we need is Boris Johnson just to move slightly closer to us. 
And I think that penny dropped during his meeting in Luxembourg with Jean-Claude Juncker when, as suggested by people over here in Brussels, Jean-Claude Juncker went, look, your plan for agri-food and food health and plant health checks is great, but it doesn't come, it doesn't meet us all the way to basically avoiding checks on the Irish border. And Boris Johnson's like, what does? And they're like, well, customs and tariffs and VAT and duties all come into that. So now when he goes, oh, do they? Okay, we can do something with that. We can, we can talk. Let's get back. So interesting move. Stephen Barclay, the Brexit secretary, is coming over to Brussels tomorrow to hold the first political level talks um, with Michel Barnier for a long, long time. So I think now... Some mood music. The EU and, EU and London kind of know where each other are. So that's a positive thing. And then I think the question for Tom is, where does that leave the Brexit party? Yeah. When there's a deal gone through, um, we've left the EU, we then go into this general election. How do you campaign on a clean break Brexit when, that's already, when Brexit's already achieved? Well, I mean, look, there's a lot of hypotheticals and inbuilt assumptions there about what's going to happen over the next uh, few weeks. I mean, we are witnessing, obviously, from the outside, a huge psychodrama that's going on now between uh, Boris Johnson, his government and uh, the European uh, Commission. And of course, we, we saw that uh, in real time, in, you know, with, uh, with the Prime Minister of Luxembourg just the other day. Um, what so, did you think of that? Did you think that was very rude? I thought it was extremely rude. And, and, and I think for a, a sort of toy town mayor, you know, uh, who, who, who you know is kind of responsible for the population <laughs> of uh, you know six hundred thousand people. Um, of course, he's democratically elected. Um, elected. But look, I mean, here was someone. I mean, this was the classic. Here's my fifteen minutes of, of fame. I mean, no one ever heard of this guy at all. I mean, probably even in Belgium, and that's Stop. right next door to Luxembourg. <laughs> so, 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 um, uh, you know, I, I, look, I, I think the whole way in which these uh, closing stages of these three-year-long uh, laborious negotiations. Uh, have been terribly disrespectful, actually, to Theresa May as well. Remember the um, you know, the Donald Tusk, no cherries on this cake mm. um, photo. They love so trolling. We've had a lot of that over the last sort of three years. But um, look, I, I mean, I suspect where we're going to get to, and this whole ultimatum thing as well, it's also part of the psychodrama, isn't it? You know, the European Commission wants, frankly, the first two weeks of October to pour over the plans that Boris Johnson has, to then get round the uh, EU capitals, to rubbish all the ideas that are coming out. So then that gives them maximum leverage when they get to the one minute to midnight European Council meeting when they'll be looking to close a deal. Both sides will be desperate to close a deal. We know that because, of course, the Conservatives don't want to face, as, uh, you know, a, a, is it Rob? Um, Joe. Uh, Joe, sorry. Um, yeah. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> sorry, Joe, you haven't, you haven't, yeah, you haven't been um, replaced in Brussels, don't <laughs> Don't worry. No, uh, you know, I think, you know, that's that's where the Tories want to get to because, you know, of course they don't want to go to the country uh, having not secured uh, Brexit, having uh, instead had to go for the extension. And I fully accept the Brexit party electorally will be in a very different uh, position if Boris hasn't delivered on his promise, you know, the do or die, mm. rather be dead in a ditch, uh, quite colourful language from the Prime yeah. Minister about his determination to... Uh, secure Brexit. But just back to this, you know, country before party point. I mean, uh, there'll be nobody more pleased than members of the Brexit party if we do get to a position on uh, the uh, 31st of October that we've got what we voted for back in 2016. But at, at the moment, I just think you can't trust Boris. We don't trust that he's not just prepared really to come back with a slightly reheated uh, Theresa May deal. And that's what he's going to try and get through. That's what you think, a, the microwave, House of Commons. a microwave dinner kind of thing. Yes, yeah. with, with, you know, all the problems we've already discussed about how, 
yes, there's some repatriation of sovereignty, but actually it's a really a Brino, as it's described, a Brexit in name only. I think the, 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 the deal, though, that Boris is trying to construct is slightly different. So, well, tell me how it is slightly the, different, because I, I mean, obviously there's a lot of rhetoric around the backstop has to go, but in what way is it, is it, is it different? Really so different. There's some interesting, interesting points being made. Um, so David Frost, who's Boris's chief negotiator, the new Ollie Robbins, has been mm. over, and he's been discussing things with his counterparts in the commission, saying, actually, we, what we want to do is we want to move away from the political declaration stuff that Theresa May set, which says the backstop is essentially that kind of baseline for our future trade, which kind of was the direction of a customs union, was the direction of single market alignment, that dynamic alignment. So what he said is we can't have dynamic alignment. We want a best-in-class best in free trade agreement. We want to cut ties to what was promised with Theresa, under Theresa May with defence cooperation. We want it to make it look like Britain is entirely sovereign for that decision, which just seems to be a kind of a lot of what the Brexit Party have promised recently. So maybe the Brexit Party can be heralded as, as kind of Boris Johnson's kind of influence for the deal. But I just, I just think it's very, the deal is going to look very different when it cuts back. It's going, it's going to be hundreds of pages less. Um, the political declaration is going to be scrapped down. It might only even be one page by the time from 28. So I think it's going to look very different and it's going to basically set up a general election where Boris Johnson, Jeremy Corbyn, Joe Swinson can battle it out, um, essentially you and Nigel Farage can battle it out to actually shape the direction of what Brexit looks like. So you've got to remember, this is only the withdrawal agreement. Indeed. It's not the yeah. Brexit deal. Yeah. And one thing I mean, I'd absolutely agree with you on is in terms of how the Brexit party has influenced the Tory party strategy post Theresa May going into these negotiations. I mean, frankly, I don't think we would have Boris Johnson as uh, prime minister if the Brexit party had not been formed 24 weeks ago. And, you know, we weren't the largest uh, political party now in the European Parliament with our hopefully temporary 29 MEPs. So there's no question, just because we're not in the House of Commons, we're not part of the sort of current political class and all the to and froing around the Brexit withdrawal agreement, there's no question that we're influencing it uh, extremely. But it's just whether when we get to that one minute to midnight, can you trust Boris in the end to deliver on his promise? Will he come come back with an agreement that does, as you've described, get us out of uh, you know this European army, ensure that we get repatriation of our um, fishing grounds and we can, as an independent coastal state, have grown-up conversations with other coastal states about how we collaborate on uh, fishing resources. I mean, these are the sorts of questions I think are still still unanswered. Can we just talk about the Supreme Court ruling really quickly? Do you, So to your point about does anyone trust, do we trust Boris? Seems like you don't. Do you think if if he if they're found that he illegally prorogued Parliament, do you think that matters? Does it matter? Do you think to man and woman on the street that it matters? Does it damage his brand any more than any of the other embarrassing stuff that's happened to him in the last twenty four hours? Has damaged his brand? Well, from what I read, Dominic Cummins, his senior advisor, obviously uh, you know, the the key architect of the Vote Leave campaign back in twenty sixteen. This general election is shaping up to be the mother of all people against the parliament mm. and are arguably against the political class. So I think any ruling that comes out from the Supreme Court, in terms of how it actually lands outside of the SW1 bubble, 
will have virtually zero consequence. Uh, uh, of course, you know, if we do see a ruling today that says, that upholds the Scottish court, in, interestingly, of course, we've already had two courts, one in Northern Ireland, one in England. So I don't know quite where that gets you in terms of, uh, <laughs> this were a football match, what, was it sort of 2-1 up, you know? So, you know, it'd be a score draw um, at the end of the day. But of course, um, yeah, the government will have to comply uh, with any ruling of the Supreme Court. But of course, it doesn't stop Boris then prorogue in Parliament again. I mean, the, mm. the raw prerogative around uh, suspending Parliament uh, will not be uh, eliminated from our Constitution. Uh, whatever the ruling today, it will just be obviously part of the ongoing drama about uh, Parliament uh, against the people it doesn't seem and the like, judges. Yeah, it doesn't seem yeah. like Boris can do much to kind of shake people. I don't know, he's a bit Teflon or whatever the phrase is, isn't he? doesn't really matter what he does. As we've seen on the other side of the Atlantic with Trump. Well, I mean, quite. Uh, you draw the parallel. If you're, if you're talking to your core base, uh, which, you know, obviously the Tories prior to a general election, and we saw, you know, through Boris's own leadership campaign, I mean, all, all this is uh, is red meat to mm. uh, core Tory supporters. And these are the people, obviously, that Boris uh, and the electoral strategies are concerned about because these are the people, essentially, are going to put a return Conservative MPs. This is from their perspective. Um, but for the Brexit party, what we're about is you know, holding their feet to the fire between now and the 31st of October. Let's see if they deliver. If they don't deliver and we're into extension territory, then actually all bets are off, I think, in terms You're of... You're going to get even nastier. Well, it's not about getting nastier. <laughs> I just think we stand a much better chance of convincing the British people that if you really do want a political party that's going to come in and take control of these negotiations, um, then you have to actually elect Brexit Party MPs. Yeah, you are a total tour de force. We've said it a lot on this podcast that, yeah, to kind of come from nowhere and to have built the momentum that you guys have is staggering. And you have Martin Daubney in your ranks, who we're all just big fans he's of here. absolute star. He was brilliant he yesterday, wasn't he? His speech in he's, the, uh, the He's plenary. brilliant. In, in fact, you know, I even have my daughters last night saying, Dad, can we watch Star Wars? I don't know if it was because they just saw me watching a clip <laughs> Of Martin Dormney, you know, and his metaphors of the yeah. Death Star and the Empire. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm sure there was some subliminal influence. Not, yeah. <laughs> not that I'm trying to get my seven and nine-year-olds no, into the Brexit no, let, let, just let They're far some, too innocent. Please. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. Keep them away from Yeah, that. that's like child abuse stuff. <laughs> um, it's been so wonderful having you on our podcast, Tom. You yeah, are you. a fascinating character, and I think you speak for a lot of our listeners, and your journey you. from left to Brexit is, is quite something. Thank you very much. Do you have any final thoughts? No, only I really, really enjoyed talking to you. And, you. and Joe, if I got your name correct, yeah, in Joe's Brussels. Uh, Joe, anything you wanted to add before we say au revoir? Goodbye, brother. <laughs> uh, uh, au revoir. Uh, adios. Goodbye. Um, I think next week is going to be a big, big week for Brexit. Yeah. I'm going to make that prediction. Go on. I think um, we've had some, we have some weeks of kind of stagnant quagmire stuff, but I think we're going to see some sort of breakthrough, some sort of bigger plan emerge. And it's unfortunately, I think, for, for Tom, he's not going to like it, but it's going to move towards that uh, Boris Brexit no, deal. Tom is up for it. Um, Tom is raring to go. I <laughs> can a, tell. I'm always up for getting out <laughs> of the European Union. Yeah, I've been you... waiting since <laughs> 29th of March very, very patiently. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see. <laughs> a big week. Okay, Fab, thank you both so much for joining us. And we will be here same time, same place, but with more news. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Brexit The Final Countdown. If you like what you heard, make sure you click subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, you could always leave us a review.